0: open with me in your Bibles, please, to Amos chapter 7. Back into the minor prophets. And last week, not Amos, Nathan shared his testimony with us. And he not only shared his testimony and about what God has done in his life, how he brought him from darkness into light, but he talked to us about thankfulness. Uh, that as he looks at his life and where he's been, he is tremendously thankful for what God has done. We sang a song, Be Still My Soul. How can you go through the lyrics of that song, Be Still My Soul, and not come to a place of joyful gratitude for what God has done? We have so much to be thankful for, and yet he brought up the idea that there are four kind of levels that we kind of tend to flow in and out of. There's the the level four that is really ungrateful, bitter, resentful, resentful, thankless, Uh, There's kind of a level three that he said, uh, the idea of indifference. You don't complain, you're not bitter, but you're not really thankful for anything. And we can look at those two and say, those are probably not where the believer wants to be. But then uh, there's a level two, and that's where you're thankful for good things. You're thankful for those things that you see as uh, good, as pleasant, as rewarding, as comforting. And many times, that's what we gravitate to. Being thankful for those things that we, in our perspective, count as good or pleasant. But that falls short of the biblical idea of gratitude, and that is moving all the way to what Nathan called level one, and that's being thankful for what things? Thankful for all things. And all things actually meaning all things, those things that are good and pleasant and appear to be beneficial, and those things that are painful, uh, distressing, and that we can't find the good in in the moment. Biblical gratitude is gratitude to God at all times for all things, but why is that? it's not based on how we feel about a circumstance it's based on what we know to be true about our god the god who works in the good and pleasant and comfortable and the god who works in the trouble in the distress in the trial and in the pain and because god is who he is because he is omnipotent and sovereign almighty all-knowing because he is good and because he intends good for us we not only can be thankful But being thankful is really the only right and reasonable and rational response to a God who works like that. So that's what we're called to. And now we jump back into the Minor Prophets you say, how do you connect thankfulness to the Minor Prophets? Because if you ask people, what is the major theme of the Minor Prophets? If you've been with us since January, the people that I ask tend to say something like judgment. And there's a lot of judgment in the Minor Prophets. I mean, we're probably going to get to some this week if you had to bet. And you'd be right. Judgment's not the theme of the minor prophets. Judgment is the vehicle that transports the themes of the minor prophets. Because as you look at the judgment that God brings, you ask why. Why is there judgment? Well, there's judgment because God is holy and sin is serious. How does God judge? Well, God judges with absolute sovereignty over every aspect of the judgment, and He judges with perfect justice. But why is it that so often in the middle of that judgment we hear words of pardon, invitations of mercy? Well, it's because God is merciful by His nature. And so judgment isn't necessarily the theme, but you look at these four great themes and you see that judgment happens to be a vehicle that conveys all of those wonderful truths about God. What's the connection to thankfulness? I'm tremendously thankful for the minor prophets because they force me to do what I wouldn't naturally or normally do. And that is to stop and pause before the seriousness of my sin. The minor prophets force us to think carefully and critically and not about Israel's sin, but about mine. Not about Israel's stubbornness, not about Israel's hard-heartedness, but about mine. And I'm tremendously thankful because I don't want to do that on my own. I know that I've got sin, but in my pride and in my uh, self-satisfaction, I want to look at it. And if I look at it at all, I want to do it quickly and move right on to the redemption, right on to the restoration side of the story, because that's comfortable. That's easy. There's joy there. And yet, how good and how faithful is God to give us this extended look at who He is, and in light of that, how serious sin is, and in light of that, how beautiful our redemption and salvation is. See, if you take away the seriousness of sin, if you take away the holiness of God, you have a cheap salvation. You have an easy grace. You have a message that doesn't actually save anybody because it says that you're really not all that bad to begin with and that God is probably okay with you because you're really, you know, you're somewhere in the middle at the very least. Now, the minor prophets remind me that it takes a great and holy God, a merciful God, to save a wayward and wandering sheep like me. I'm tremendously thankful for that. And as we go through today, we were supposed to cover Amos chapters 7 and 8. Those who form the bulletin and make the sermon questions um, are wondering at the change of slide number one up there. That's because I got all the way up to yesterday, and it was going to be Amos 7 and 8. And then for the sake of time and length and your sanity and sanctification, we're just going to get through chapter (laughs) 7. I want to read the first 3 verses of chapter 7 to set the stage for where we're going as we look at some prophetic pictures in the book of Amos today. Amos chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me, says Amos. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings and when they had finished eating the grass of the land. I said, "O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small." And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come once again uh, before the justice of a holy God. And in these pictures today, we see once again the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, the perfection of your standard, and the mercy after mercy that you offer to the fallen human race. Lord, as we move through your word today, open our eyes open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We on our own are blind, we are hard, we are stubborn, Uh, we are bitter and resentful people, even rejecting the God who formed us. Lord, do what only you can do. Soften hearts, open eyes, unstop ears, and allow the truth of your word to penetrate us, and then don't stop at understanding. Lord, we ask that you would move us toward faithful obedience. And we come to you in total dependence for all of those things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now we begin evaluating ourselves, uh, really other people also begin evaluating us, uh, from the time that we come out of the womb. Uh, You're laid there on that cold metal table, and they take measurements immediately. You're this high, you're this long, you're not high at all yet. You're this long, you weigh this much, and immediately you're put into a percentile with how you rank with other babies. And then the developments and the milestones start and you're compared, well, my child started crawling at six months. That's nothing. My child started walking at eight months. That's nothing. My child was running 5Ks by the time they were a year old. And you say, that's ridiculous. But you've seen parents and you know it's not that far off. And as soon as we're able to, we actually start comparing ourselves to other people. My tooth came out first. Well, I'm taller. Well, I'm smarter. Well, I'm the better accountant, and it goes all the way through our whole lives. We find this standard of measure as we look around and compare ourselves to others. Built into our fallen human nature is the desire to justify self based on the standard that I put on other people. We find satisfaction in being the best at something. And if we can't be the best, at least being better than that other guy. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that, of course, is that nothing of any eternal value is measured on human standards. Nothing of eternal value is on a comparison basis. Everything of eternal value is based on the standard of God's perfect holiness. God creates man and woman. He creates humanity. And he says, be holy as I am holy. And we fall short of that. And as we come to Amos chapter seven, once again, we're reminded of God's kindness in exposing the failure of faulty comparisons. Amos chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 give some prophetic pictures of how God views His people, what is happening and what will happen. And Amos chapter 7 in particular takes us through the ideas of uh, these things that God reveals. The revelation is the first three pictures that we're going to go over, and then we're going to see, sadly, the rejection of that truth that Amos brings. And the first two visions of chapter 7, the first two bits of this revelation are a picture of God in his mercy. Look at verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold... He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout and behold it was the latter growth after the king's mowings now God shows Amos a vision he's given him words to speak he's given him messages to preach up to this point and now uh, the means changes and he's given Amos visions pictures that demonstrate a spiritual truth and this first one is locusts and because we've been through Joel we know what locusts are and what they can do angry, hungry grasshoppers that by the tens of millions sometimes come and completely devour all living growth in an area. And it can span hundreds of miles. And locusts are devastating, especially with an agrarian society that is totally dependent on what they grow. There's no ability to import vast amounts of food from long distances. Uh, locusts could be a death sentence to a people. And and Amos not only tells us that locusts are coming, he says when they are coming. He says it was uh, as the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. He's like, look, behold, pay attention to when this is because it matters. To have the locusts come through at the beginning of the season would have been devastating. But this is after that. He says this is after uh, the first growth. This is after the king's mowings, which is weird, but remember a long time ago, the people of Israel said they wanted a king. They were warned, you don't want a king. King's going to take your sons, and he's going to bring them off to war, and the king's going to tax you, because the government gets theirs. And apparently, the way that it worked was the first gleanings out of the fields were taxed. They were given to the king for his purposes, and then you would take the later growth for you and your family. Now imagine that first growth has come, you've harvested it, you've given it off to taxes, and now you're dependent on everything that grows after that, and that's when the locusts come. That's why this is such a terrible devastation. It's not just locusts, it's locusts when there's no other opportunity for food. There is no more wet season. There is no extended pleasant growing season now. There is no time to have a second harvest. Now the locusts have come in and devastated any hope of anything that is going to come after this. So Amos pleads with God, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Amos is perceptive. See, we would read through that plea really quickly, but it highlights a couple of very important things. First of all, what does he say? O Lord God, please restore the fields. No, he says, O Lord God, please forgive. See, Amos recognizes that this is not an ecological problem. This is not an environmental issue. This is a sin issue. Amos recognizes that this is coming and is going to come because of the failure of God's people. And what they need is not better crops. What they need is not protection from the locusts. What they need ultimately is forgiveness. Second, Amos realizes that Israel is small And that is especially important because if you remember, at this time, Israel would not have considered itself small. Both the northern and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, are at a period of strength. The northern kingdom, Israel, has territory that they have not had since the reign of Solomon. They are at peace. They are at ease. Their agriculture is thriving. Their trade is thriving. This is a nation that would not describe itself as small and weak. And Amos sees exactly what they are. They are weak and on the verge of collapse. They were not able to recognize their own helplessness, their own smallness. And I think that's sobering because I think we suffer from the same disease a lot of times. We look around and America's economy and military have global impact. Our technology, our medicine, our cultural influence has global impact. And yet, without God... Without a commitment to worship, without a commitment to walk in his ways, America is small, weak, on the verge of collapse, not because of ecology or economy, but because of rebellion. And that might be one thing on a national level, but we do the same thing in our own lives, don't we? I have a job, I have a house, I am secure, I have a strong marriage, I've got good kids. I'm secure. How often we're blind to the weakness that really describes our fallen condition. And by the way, that's another reason to be thankful for trials. It's another reason why trials, although painful and that is real, are ultimately a blessing. It strips away that self-deception that I so easily stack up. It strips away uh, that self-assurance and that arrogant confidence that says, I have what I need in my own strength. And it reminds me that I am totally and wholly dependent on who God is and and what he's done. And as Amos pleads, God relents. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Why? Why would he do that? Well, we've been through enough of the minor prophets, and at this point we've been through six chapters in Amos. We know that Israel deserves the judgment. They are a wicked people, but God is going to spare them from complete destruction, not because they are somehow inherently good or worth saving, not because they are finally going to shape up and figure things out and get it right on their own. God is going to relent only because he is merciful. Another one of those great themes. God relents only because of that, not because they deserve it, because it is in his nature. It is in his sovereign divine nature to be kind and merciful to his people. And the second vision in Amos 7 is very much the same. Look at verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord was calling for a judgment by fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Once again, we see fire used as a picture of judgment. Uh, this time it's either a, a literal fire, but the idea of the deep and the land seems to speak to some kind of terrible drought that's coming. Uh, an extended period of dry, scorching weather that removes any kind of moisture, which again, at the edge of a desert environment, is, it's a death sentence. Once again, Amos responds, O oh Lord God, please cease. Once again, this isn't coming because of the natural cycle of things, this isn't coming because of whether He says, "O oh Lord God, this is coming from you, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small, once again recognizing how small and dependent and helpless Israel was. And once again, the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be," said the Lord God. He will spare him, spare the people the fiery destruction that they deserve, because He is merciful." These first two visions of terrible judgment to come are really pictures of God's mercy, his sparing, preserving mercy, even for a wicked people. And then we come to the third vision, and we see that God is merciful, but he is not merciful at the expense of justice. The third vision begins like the first two, but the theme uh, and really the result is different. This one deals with God's standard of measure. Look at verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Well, not all of us use plumb lines very often. And uh, the idea is that when you build a wall, it needs to be straight. Not just because crooked walls don't look good, but because crooked walls can be dangerous and deadly things. And at this point, I need a couple of kids to help me out. Is there anyone in fifth grade or below that would be willing to come up here and help me out? Yeah, Zoe Alfar, just come on up here. If you want to, come on up. Yep, come on up. It's okay. Yeah, you, come on. It's okay. Good. Excellent. Welcome, Ms. Ostrove. All right. These are Sharpies. Sorry parents, no clothes, got it? One for each. Here's what I need you to do. I need you each to draw a line from the top to the bottom of your paper that is as straight as you can make it. So you can go on the floor and you can draw your line, but do it pretty quickly here because the people are waiting. But I need you to draw the straightest line that the world has ever seen. Excellent awesome good all right and then i need you to stand up and show everybody your straight lines those are pretty good straight lines yeah there you go now here's what i need you to do ready gonna get a little tricky Zoe. i need you to hold your paper up on top like that hold it right there and i need you to put your paper underneath hers right there and you guys are going to make a line out of those lines make them one straight long line you're going to build that wall as straight as you can and then we're going to measure it this is kind of like a plumb line mine's probably a little fancier in the string than theirs would have been but these are used to mark how straight a wall is and uh uh-oh if you look at our wall here while those lines might have looked pretty straight we see when we hold the line up to it that it's not quite as straight as we would have hoped for huh thanks guys you did a good job you can keep your papers head back down oh wait but i'll take the pens that would be a disaster wouldn't it One, two, three, four. Good job, guys. (laughs) See, the problem is when you have no standard, you have no way of measuring straightness. And in a day without laser levels and bubble levels and anything else to set up a straight line, you used what that plumb line was, a weight on the end of a string that would show you through gravity what a straight line was like. And the picture that Amos sees is of the Lord standing beside a wall that is built straight and true, holding a plumb line that is designed to make things straight and true. Now, our kids drew lines as straight as they could, and they looked pretty straight. By their own estimation, they were straight. When you put them together, you could compare straightness, and some of them were a little straighter than others. But you put a bunch of things that are almost straight together and what do you get? Something that is actually not straight at all. And now the Lord is going to say that this is the problem with Israel. Amos, what do you see? He said, I see a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The Lord God is now going to drop the plumb line in the middle of his people. He is going to take his standard and he is going to hold it up next to a people that he called to be straight and true, and he will let justice make the determination. And that is a sobering promise that I will walk among the people. I'll put the plumb line up to them and get that. I will never again pass by them. For a couple hundred years, God has passed by them, he has called them. They've had His standard. They've had His law. He's called them. They've had prophets. They've had warnings. He's given them time to repent, but the time has passed. The Lord is no longer going to pass by. The time for just judgment is coming. And as He sets His standard against His people, He sees that they've failed. And in particular, in verse 9, He condemns two things. He says, the high places of Isaac will be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. First of all, he condemns their failed worship. He holds the plumb line, what is straight and true, up to their approach to God and he finds it lacking. Remember, God had told them what worship was supposed to look like. Worship is never about the worshiper. Worship is never about what makes the worshiper feel good, feel emotional, feel fulfilled, feel religious. Worship is always about the object of your worship. And God had told them what worship looked like. God had told them where worship happened, in the temple, in Jerusalem, God had told them how worship proceeded through these offerings, through these sacrifices, at these times, through this appointed priesthood, and in particular in the northern kingdom, they had done away with that altogether. When the kingdom divided, Jeroboam I, uh, again, hundreds of years before this, Jeroboam I had set up alternate worship sites, Bethel and Dan. We'll get into that again in a few minutes. He said you don't have to go down to Jerusalem. He didn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem. If they went down to Jerusalem to worship, they might decide to just stay down there and go back under the Davidic line of kings, and then you lose your northern kingdom. Uh, But they had already, for again, the history of that part of the nation, they have rejected what true worship looked like. And the second piece that he holds that standard up to and finds failing is the political state of Israel. And God condemns the house of Jeroboam at the end of verse 9. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. God did not want his people to be a divided nation. He didn't call them to be a divided nation. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But when the kingdom divided, after Solomon's rebellion really against God and the trouble that would come on Israel because of that, uh, Jeroboam I, that first king of northern Israel, God actually told him, if you obey me, I'll make you strong. The northern kingdom a separated people. God said, if you walk in my ways, I'll strengthen you. I'll strengthen your house. From the very beginning, even the northern kings were not ignorant. Even the northern kings were not without opportunity to obey. And yet failure after failure after failure, and now it comes to the house of Jeroboam II, and they continue to fail. They still would not listen. They still would not obey. And although they appear strong, although the nation appears to be at a place of strength and prosperity, although the king appears powerful, God is going to judge. And he's going to judge rightly. And you might notice that this time there's no response from Amos, is there? There's no plea. There's no relenting. Why? Because this is just. This isn't God intervening when he feels like it without an apparent standard, just exercising wrath for the sake of wrath, that God says, this is the standard. This is straight. This is true. This is my way. And you've been given every opportunity. And now what's coming is justice. God will preserve a portion of his people, something that we'll see clearly as the book ends. But God will exercise his justice because God is holy and he has to. And for the sake of his people, and for the sake of his name, God has to act. So what's the response to the faithful preaching of Amos? Well, it's not hard to guess, even being this familiar with the Minor Prophets, that the response is rejection. Uh, So often, I think that we assume that if we just do what's right, things will go right. That if we say true things, people will listen. That if we respond in the way we're supposed to, that other people will respond in the way that they're supposed to. That somehow our obedience will be reciprocated with other people's obedience and that everything will tend to work itself out in the end. Well, the reality is that we live in a fallen world. The reality is that so often truth that is spoken not only confronts those who choose to live in rebellion, but it actually enrages those who choose to re- live in rebellion. It's offensive to the people who are determined to stand against God. And so even when truth rightly spoken is given, what we see is rejection. And this is going to be especially helpful to us as we too recognize that we are called to be a people that speak truth into a fallen time and place to a sinful and darkened people. And as we go through these next verses, the last part of chapter 7 here, uh, what's going to follow is an interaction between Amos and a man named Amaziah. And Amaziah is said to be a priest at Bethel. And this next slide up here is going to give us a little bit of kind of geographical context again. Remember, Amos is from a place called Tekoa. It's down just south of Jerusalem there. And now he's going to travel up to Bethel, just across the border into that northern kingdom of Israel. But remember, when that kingdom divided... There were two shrines set up, one at Dan on the northern border and one at Bethel on the southern border. This is a cultic religious center of the northern kingdom. This is where the altar with the golden calf is. This is where the people were told, you can go and you can worship God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Amos has gone right to the heart of where the controversy is going to be. He does not take a warm-up lap with the easy cities first. He goes right to the heart of where the problem and the confrontation would be. And as he goes and as he moves into this phase of rejection, what he's going to be met with is fallen reasoning. And as we move into this first part here, uh, the argument that the priest of Bethel brings is going to be this series of steps in false reasoning. So let's kind of look at this. Verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Now, the problem with that is there shouldn't have been no priesthood operating at Bethel. There, shouldn't have been, there should not have been a functioning priesthood there, but there was. And Amaziah sends word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words, for thus Amos has said Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And from the very beginning of that report, we see the first element of fallen reasoning, and that is that it distorts the truth. In Amaziah's report to King Jeroboam, he takes what Amos has said and he twists it ever so slightly. Now it is true that Amos has talked about the rebellion of the king and the people. It is true that Amos has talked about the exile of the people, that that is what is coming because of their consistent rebellion. Amos has even, very clearly in verse 9, spoken against the house of Jeroboam. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword, is what God had said. But Amos did not ever say that Jeroboam himself would die by the sword. He couldn't. It actually would have made him a false prophet. Jeroboam doesn't die by the sword. He dies of natural causes. His sons, his house, are overtaken by Assyria. They are killed. But what Amaziah does is he takes the truth of what Amos says, and he twists it, and he distorts it. Why would he do that? Well, if you tell a king that a prophet is talking about your death, chances are you're going to turn that king against what the prophet is saying pretty quickly. And so, this fallen reasoning says, if I can distort the message, then I can discredit the messenger. And that shouldn't surprise us, because here in Amos chapter 7, this is not ultimately a confrontation between Amos and Amaziah. It's not ultimately a confrontation between prophet and priest. Ultimately, this is good and evil. Ultimately, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the promise of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the consistent conflict between those two. Satan is the father of lies and he has been since the beginning. And it ought to be no surprise to us that those who are his children, who follow in the system of this fallen world under the power of the prince of darkness, would employ his tactics. And so this fallen reasoning is ultimately a false reasoning and it distorts the truth. That's not the end of the trouble. After his dishonest report, Amaziah confronts Amos directly. Look at verse 12. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go. Flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Fallen reasoning not only distorts the truth, fallen reasoning distorts the motive. See, Amaziah assumes that Amos is really, at the end of the day, just like him. He says, Amos, go home. You don't need this. First of all, Amos, go home and do what you do in peace. Amos, go home because here you've got nothing but conflict. And trust me, you don't want this kind of conflict. You don't need this trouble. Amaziah appeals to the idea that Amos will act in self-preservation. And not only self-preservation, but self-promoting. Go and eat your bread there. See, Amaziah assumes that not only is Amos a prophet, but that Amos earns his living from being a prophet. Why would he assume that? because Amaziah got what he got through his work as a priest. He was not a priest because God had called him to be a priest. God had not. He was not a priest so that he could facilitate the right worship of God's people. He could not do that in Bethel. He was what he was for his own gain, and he assumes that Amos has the same motivations that he does. And so he says, Amos, you don't need the trouble, but you might need the money. Go home and do what you do and we'll just let this whole thing blow over, and it'll be good for us, and it'll be good for you. Fallen men simply cannot fathom doing what's right, regardless of the consequence. Fallen reasoning distorts the truth. Fallen reasoning distorts the motive. And finally, fallen reasoning distorts the authority. Look what Amaziah goes on to say. He says, but never again prophesy at Bethel, Why? For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Now, Amaziah doesn't appeal to his motivation. Now he threatens him based on his authority. Never again prophesy here. This isn't your place. You are out of your depth. You are out of your league. You are way out of your jurisdiction here. This is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Remember what God had just judged according to that plumb line. What were the two things that God specifically said were out of line? Israel's worship and Israel's king. And what does Amaziah appeal to as the authority? Israel's king and Israel's worship. Do not miss that. Amaziah says, the king has the authority here. And we worship the way we are worshiping here. You have no authority to condemn us. Now, of course, he's appealing to a failed king. He he is appealing to a false sanctuary. He assumes that Amos will crumble in his resolve before these man-made authorities. And now all those things, again, are specific to this encounter. This is a real historical thing that happened, but we have to understand that none of those things died with Amos and Amaziah, did they? The same opposition is still out there for those of us who would speak the truth. The enemy still tries to distort the message. The enemy still tries to appeal to fleshly desires and motivations. The enemy still tries to intimidate by pointing out fallen authority. So the question is, what does Amos do? What does a faithful messenger do in the face of this kind of opposition? what does a faithful response look like? And as we close today, that's what I want to walk through. I want to walk through Amos' faithful response and see what characterized that. And the first thing we see that characterizes Amos' faithful response is that Amos responds humbly. Look at what he says, verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. See, Amaziah assumed that Amos was a professional prophet because there would have been some prestige associated with that. Uh, That would have mattered to people. And Amos is quick to point out that he's not a prophet. He didn't come from being a prophet. He didn't come from a long line of prophets. He had no connection. He had no expectation that God would speak through him. Well, what was he? It says he was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Read that as a nobody from nowhere. He didn't have family connections. He didn't have political connections. He didn't have training. He didn't have academics that would back him up. He didn't have any of the credentials or qualifications that would make people sit up and automatically and intrinsically take notice of what he had said. Amos is only useful because God has chosen to use him. That is a wonderful, humble place to begin faithful ministry. And so his faithful response recognizes and responds in humility. And the second thing, his faithful response recognizes right authority. Look at verse 15. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. How can a humble man talk the way that he does? How can a nobody from nowhere call a nation to repentance? Well, the answer is he knows who sent him. He recognizes exactly where true authority lies. See, Amos was not out in the fields one day and just suddenly come to the realization, you know what, sheep stink. They are frustrating. They don't do what I want to do. Sometimes they bite. And you know what, sycamore figs, they don't taste that good. Kind of a pain to grow. Not that great anyway. Amos did not look around at his surroundings and say, you know what, I could be doing better. I've got some things that these people need to hear and they're going to hear it. Now, Amos recognizes that he was who he was until God told him to do something different. He speaks what God tells him to speak. He speaks it when God tells him to speak it. And he recognizes that the king is not the ultimate authority. That the priests are not the ultimate authority. That the people are not the ultimate authority. That God alone has the authority to give His message to His messengers... Because it's the message that has the authority. And finally, what characterizes a faithful response is repeating the truth. Against the lies, against the coercion and the threats, Amos says exactly what God tells him to. Look at verse 16. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Amos doesn't defend himself. Amos doesn't uh, attempt to kind of restore his fallen honor. Amos doesn't uh, try to maintain his own reputation. He simply says, I'm not who you think I am. I was nobody until God called me. So because of that, you need to hear this. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. You, in all your authority, in all your worldly entrappings of false religion, with all your threats, you say, stop. So listen. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword and your land will be divided up with a measuring line. Amaziah, your rebellion is going to lead to disaster. Your family will suffer. Your possessions will be completely removed. And by the way, you yourself will surely die. That's what he says. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And then to broaden that, to to, to kind of underline and reinforce the the message that he's been giving the whole time, Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. In spite of all the pushback, the message stays the same. Amos speaks the truth. He doesn't run in the face of adversity. He doesn't defend himself from the lies or the attacks. He doesn't attempt to kind of defend his reputation. He just does what God has called him to do. And looking at the time, I'm really glad we didn't try to squeeze chapter 8 into that. So what do we have? We have a prophet who was called to be a straight line in a crooked world. We recognize that we have the calling to be straight lines in a crooked world. Amos preached to a people that were out of plumb, that were out of line, God had given them a standard and a measure and they had walked far, far away from it. And we're called to speak to a people in a culture that are not only crooked, not only out of line, but that celebrate how crooked they can be. But here's the reality is we're not called to bring people back to the good old days. We're not called to bring people back to a standard that we've set, to think like we do, to act like we do, to vote like we do. Now, we're calling people to a much higher standard. We're calling them to the God who determines truth. We're called to speak the truth to sin-hardened and blinded people. We're called to speak the truth to bring words that promise eternal life to people who are dead and dying in their sin. So how do we do that? How do you and I prove to be faithful messengers in a crooked and perverse generation Well, first of all, we need to be a people who are reminded and who remind others of God's perfect standard. We need to preach the right standard. The gospel makes God's standard absolutely clear. God creates, and he calls his creation to be holy as he is holy. And the plumb line is perfection. The picture is Christ, perfect obedience, perfect faithfulness, Even in weariness, even in injustice, even in pain, perfection is the call. The standard is not my best. The standard is not your best. The standard is not slightly better than someone else. The standard is God's perfection. And that message is important because it confronts people in their sin. It reminds the world of sin and how far they have fallen from God. But that message is also important because it tends to keep the messenger pretty humble, doesn't it? Because I'm not telling people to try to be as good as I am. I'm not telling people that I've somehow figured out the formula that makes God like you and will make him accept you into his kingdom. See, the gospel that you and I preach says I was lost. I was as wayward and deserving of judgment as anyone on this planet my sin deserved the same eternal judgment and the only measure that matters for me for you for anyone is god's perfection and that leads us of course to the second part of our obedient response and that is to highlight god's patient mercy we are called to be a people who remember and who preach and who apply the patient mercy of god israel was wicked and still god waited he didn't have to He could have ended it the day the kingdom divided. He could have ended it on any time, at any portion, in any one of their fallen worship ceremonies. God could have brought the whole thing to a crushing end. But he waited, and he warned, and he sent the prophets to plead and call people back. And that same God with that same perfect standard in his mercy waits today. See, there's a time coming when every wrong is going to be set right, when every evil and rebellious word, thought, and action is going to be dealt with. But for today, God waits. And while he waits, the gospel goes out and it calls fallen men and women to himself. Because in his mercy, in his patient mercy, God provided the means of escape from his wrath. Jesus Christ. God very God who took on flesh to be like the men and women that he created Jesus Christ without one fallen or wicked thought word or deed Jesus Christ who although he lived perfectly died in our place who bore the wrath of God, poured out against sins that He did not commit, but that you and I did. Who rose again, whose resurrection is the first fruits, the down payment, the promise of our resurrection. God's mercy provided the Savior that we so desperately needed. And still, God waits. And as people that have seen, and not only seen and understood, but as people who have participated and partaken of that mercy, how could we not be the most merciful people on this earth? How could I desire that somebody else pays for what they've done when I so desperately cling to the mercy that God provided? How could I sit and hope that others uh, wallow in their judgment while I stand covered by the blood of Christ and not only pardoned, but called a son or a daughter of God? See, we rejoice in God's patient mercy, and we have to exhibit that patient mercy as well. And finally, we're called to maintain our faithful witness. See, you and I, we're not just observers here, just watching the world go on around us. You and I are not survivalists, building bunkers, hunkering down, and just waiting for the hard times to pass and for everything to blow over. You know what we are? We're farmers getting up early and going out into the fields that are white with the harvest. We're athletes called to work hard, to train, to run the race well, to win the victory that God has promised us. We're soldiers fighting a battle that we've been called to with armor and weapons that God provides us. We're called to be a people who don't gauge success by numbers or even by response. We're called to be a people who gauge success by our faithful obedience to it. And so we speak to the world around us. We call evil what it is. Because Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Proverbs 17.15, The one who justifies the wicked and the one who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. So we call evil what it is. We say difficult things. We say things like killing children in the womb is murder because God says it is. We say that marriage is between a man and a woman because God says it is. We say that greed, corruption, swindling is an abomination because God says it is. It's not about politics. It's not about social values. It's not even about morality. It's about the fact that God has said what is straight and true and we are a people who have the ability to testify to God's holiness. And so we speak the truth not arrogantly, not proudly, not with any sense of self-satisfaction because we have all failed in as much as everybody else has failed. But we are not called to be arrogant or proud or brash and simply say, I was telling the truth. We are called to speak the truth in love. But we speak boldly because the truth sets people free. We speak confidently because it's the message, the gospel that saves, and not the power or the wisdom of the messenger. And we plead with people. We don't cower, and we don't threaten. We beg. We plead with people to be reconciled to a holy God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. A God who is holier than we can even imagine, and a God who is more merciful than we could ever hope for pray. Lord, help us to be faithful. You've given us the message of salvation. Amos was a faithful messenger. Nobody from nowhere used by God to speak his truth. Lord, we're we're nobodies from nowhere. There's not many wise, not many strong. There's not many who are of any worldly importance and yet you've given us the saving gospel. Lord, I pray that that gospel would be applied to the hearts of those in this room and who are watching and listening. Lord, if there are those who have not been reconciled to you through the work of Christ, I pray that the gospel would do its work and transform their hearts. And Lord, as you transform us, help us to be truly transformed, to live in obedience, and to proclaim the truth of your word, humbly, gently, but faithfully. We need your help. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.